Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. Coming up this month, we've announcements galore as opera reawakens, there's news of the most Glyndebourne thing imaginable, and just how many autographs is too many. I'm joined this month by the director Sophie Gilpin. A very good afternoon to you. Hiya, lovely to be here. I saw some very exciting news the other day that you're uh, doing a bit of Aces and Galatea this this August. Do you want to give us the, the 20 second pitch for, for that? Oh yes, so this is um, Vash Baroque Festival. Um, so we are doing an outdoor production of Aces and Galatea, which will be my first live show to live audiences since the uh, lockdown. Um, so that will be really exciting. Uh, that's Vash Baroque Festival uh, in, at the beginning of September. Fantastic. Well, and that, that theme of things starting to open up diaries being filled is definitely something we're going to be talking about today. Um, and we're also joined as well by the mezzo-soprano, Leah Shaw. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. How are things with you? Keeping busy? Yes, all good. And um, we're back in production again, which makes me very happy. It's nice to be doing things again. And what is it you're rehearsing for at the moment? So we're rehearsing for our final set of scenes um, before I graduate from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Um, and that means that I'm preparing Isabella from L'Italiana in Algeri and Madame Popova from The Bear. And I'm also doing some ugly stepsister action from Massenet Cendrillon, which is good fun. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> A rather exciting evening. So let's kick off then with this flurry of new season announcements that have, have come out recently. There's too much to go into in detail, but I'm going to do a very quick whistle-stop tour through some of the things that have been announced. Uh, the Royal Opera have a busy spring and summer package of performances, including main stage productions of La Clemenza di Tito, La Boheme and Don Giovanni. Next week, they're releasing eight experimental online operas, and uh, you'll be able to go to the Lindbury Theatre to see the world's first hyper-reality opera, Current Rising, so who knows what to expect from that, but all sounds rather exciting. They've also announced their 21-22 season, which includes new productions of Rigoletto by artistic director Oliver Mears, A New Theodora by Katie Mitchell, and Deborah Warner's Peter Grimes, which has recently had a triumphant premiere in Madrid. Scottish Opera are hosting over 200 performances this summer, including a pop-up GNS tour, David McFicker directing Falstaff, and a new film of L'Elysée d'Amore by Roxana Haynes. And finally, Opera North have announced their 21-22 season, which includes a new production of Carmen, directed by Edward Dick, Femi Eloafuju Jr., directing Rigoletto, and Tim Albury's Alcina. Uh, no female directors or conductors in Opera North's season. Uh, it is something we said we would keep uh, pointing out to companies, um, so it's, uh, I'm just going to put that out there just to, uh, just, just to have it mentioned. Sophie, we said uh, just a few minutes ago that you've got something booked in for August. Things are starting to open up. Before we kind of get into these seasons in a bit, in a bit more detail, are you kind of sensing a renewed sense of, of optimism and, and vigour? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's been a very interesting year, hasn't it, with different companies uh, approaching the different challenges they've had in very different ways. Um, and we've seen huge successes in, you know, from some organisations, um, some that have been a bit quieter, different restrictions in the different parts of the UK all playing into that. And I think everybody is just desperate to get out there. Theatre makers, companies, freelancers, audiences, and hopefully what we'll see over the next year, two years, three years is a kind of better and better industry growing out of something, you know, now we've had the time to kind of think about it and uh, and reevaluate. So that's my kind of optimistic take on what, what we'll see over the next little while. So Leah, so there's so much stuff in there and a lot in, in your neck of the woods up in up in Scotland. Mm -hmm. 
Um, out of all of that, are there things that particularly kind of caught your attention? I think that for me, it's just been so wonderful just to see what companies are doing. Um, and as Sophie said, just how they're approaching everything that's been thrown at us. I think for me, it's just, I'm feeling an immense sense of pride for Scottish Opera, really. They've done an incredible job at producing work throughout lockdown, whether that was completely digital or outdoor. Um, for example, like the narcissistic fish that happened, well, earlier in 2020. Um, and I'm I'm just I'm really really pleased that they're able to mount such a massive tour because I know for the emerging artists it's been a really big kind of that Gilbert and Sullivan tour was a really really big thing for them and they were really looking forward to it so I'm glad that they've been able to remount it. Yeah, and 200 performances is definitely something that you 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 can't ignore. It's an amazingly ambitious uh, program. Mm -hmm. so keep all fingers crossed for. For that i mean i think sophie one of the big questions that i'm interested in not just next year but for the next few years is, is how much companies keep on with digital it's obviously been the lifeblood yeah. of of all the performing arts for the for the past year and scottish particularly have you know had a fantastic program of, of films they had the telephone the narcissistic fish as you mentioned they're doing this new lelicea d'amore and we see from the royal opera house as well you know they're releasing eight online operas uh you know next week you know they really seem to be investing in, in this in this program of work i mean how excited are you as a director sophie about continuing to do digital stuff or are you just aching to be back in a room with people i think both of those things can be true actually um so i am desperate to be back um you know in real life situations with real life audiences but i think opening up this sort of world to digital theatre making is really interesting and really exciting and they offer different things to different people don't they so you know the, the digital world is never going to replace the live experience and nor should it but mm. what it can do is offer access to what feels like live theatre or a different type of theatre to people who for whatever reason can't get to an audience you know anybody who is still nervous of covid in the short or or you know, in the short term, anybody or anybody who can't have a vaccination for whatever reason, it can also open up, you know, people with any sort of other accessibility issues uh, around getting into a space. And I think the other thing that it can do that's particularly exciting is, you know, we we know that getting new audiences into opera is really important. But actually, even with cheap tickets, you've still got other barriers to overcome if you're new to opera. You've got the idea of, you know getting up and going out, you've got the train ticket. So the experience of going out, the costs can can mount up even if you're buying a ticket for 10, 15 pounds. And so, and then you, once you're in the theater, you're in the theater and if you're not enjoying it, you're stuck there. Um, and I think what uh, what digital can do is say, you know what, here's, here's a five pound access code or a 10 pound access code or whatever it is that we'll see. You can be sitting on your sofa and if you're not enjoying it, you can turn it off. Um, uh, and try something else. And I think for the sorts of arts forms like classical music, like ballet, like contemporary dance, anything that is a little bit more niche in where in the audiences that it caters to, um, we've got an opportunity to widen audiences with a really low risk kind of engagement. Um, and then once you've done that and you go, actually, I do really like that. Now I want to go and see something in real life. Then you've sort of done the first bit without having to leave your front room. Absolutely. And again, it's, it was something we'll, we'll come on to later, but a lot of the things that we've talked about over the past 12 months, whether it's digital or whether it's, you know, freelancers and appreciating freelancers, it, it will be so interesting to see what happens to these things when things, you know, get 
back back to normal kind of um, in in quotation marks. You know, do these things uh, carry on? Um, uh, that was an, an interesting point there about the ability to walk out. I just interested, Leah. Have you have you ever walked out of anything before that you're willing to admit to? Uh, in recent history, no. The last thing <laughs> I can remember walking out of, and it wasn't even because I didn't like it. I think I was quite young, and I was with my mother and sister, and we were in New York. Um, and I think we were seeing a production of Les Troyens, but we were way up in the gods and we were all really tired. Um, so we, we left very shortly after, like maybe like the beginning of the second act, because we, we were all about to just plummet. But um, no, I've never actually walked out of something because I thought, oh, this is not for me. I'm, I'm one of those people that I will always give something a try and I'll give it an absolutely fair shot if after if I've had some time to think about it, if I think, oh, that maybe wasn't for me, I'm never going to actually rule anything out. It'll probably be more likely a kind of thought of, oh, wait, this, I, I don't think I'm ready for this yet. Um, but that doesn't mean never, ever, ever. Um, just because I believe that, especially with, like, with performing arts, especially, like, you, you are only able to process what you're ready for. So if you're kind of thrown into a new world that you're not at all familiar with, I don't think it's fair to absolutely dismiss out of hand after your first viewing or your first experience, because you never know how your tastes will change or how your kind of understanding will change. Um, that happened for me with Peter Maxwell Davis. Absolutely. I thought the first time I heard, was it eight songs from our King and the medium, I thought, what is this? Like I, I was, to be fair, a lot younger. Um, <laughs> but then think of it like that. I heard that piece first when I was 17 and then fast forward to two years ago and I performed the medium myself and it's now one of my favorite pieces and I absolutely love it so it I think that's a testament to just how much we can adapt and how much we can change if we just give ourselves the time and we give the piece or the work the time of day and the space I think that's very true and I think it's actually a really pertinent question for for opera because I think we see a lot of these things where it's it's saying you know for first-time audiences all we need to do is get them to see something get them in a theatre you know the first couple of operas I saw couldn't did not interest me in the slightest you know it took quite a while for me to kind of kind of get into it I think you know it is dangerous to kind of put so much pressure on ourselves you know just see one show and people will, will fall in love with it. it yeah it isn't that easy I agree and I think it's such a massive art form isn't it you know it's when you say opera, <laughs> it encompasses so much. Um, and because, I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of opera music that I don't like, and I love opera, mm -hmm. and I work in the industry. But there are, and that may change, like you say, and it may not, and that's also okay. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. You know, and there's also certain operas by, you know, a composer that I generally like, but a particular opera that I really don't. Um, and again, that's okay. And... I think when you've got first time audiences offering a kind of range of work, different lengths, different styles, different languages, different type of productions, you know, all of that, I think is really important. And, and like you say, giving it a, a go, but also, I guess, to some extent, judicious in what you go and see if you're, you know, trying to align something with a, an element of whatever your, you know, your taste is, but then that's quite difficult to do if you don't know what you're going to see. So I think there's a lot to unpick there, isn't it? Um, I think, you know, if you if I try and bring non-opera friends to opera a lot, and there's certain things that I definitely wouldn't take them to as a first time, and there's certain things that I would, you know, and you kind of build up a kind of understanding of the language and of the world. 
Um, and for those of them who never want to come and see it, cool, fine, no problem. Go and do something else. <laughs> totally. Cozy Fan Tootie, that's mine that I just bores me. I just yeah, just don't get yeah. it. Sorry. <laughs> Off the top of my head, that's the one where I'm just like, no, thank you. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. along with all of these uh, fantastic new season announcements, there have been some company announcements as well. Um, Gustavo Dudamel to become the new music director at the Paris Opera, not known for his for his opera conducting, but, but certainly one of the few megastar classical music names out there. Jerry Cornelius has been announced as the new music director at English Touring Opera. And we also had the news that Antonio Papano is extending his contract at the Royal Opera until 2024, but then he's going to be moving across town to the London Symphony Orchestra. So already the rumour mill underway as to who will replace him at the Royal Opera. Um, Leah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested as a, as a more of a director, you know, I have a a certain uh, preference or a type of conductor I like working with. As a as a singer, what is it that that you're looking for? If you're looking down into the pit, what is you know that kind of presence that you're 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 hoping to see down there? Um, gosh, that is a very good question. I think for me, what's one of the most important things to to have in a conductor is a sense of play. Like what what we're doing is experimenting. No night or no cast will be the same as any previous. So I think what one of the things that is very important to me to kind of know about is whether a, a conductor is particularly stubborn, and I'll try to find that as soon as possible. <laughs> or if if it just kind of happens in the first rehearsal, you get a kind of vibe, and you're like, okay, I know where I am. I understand how to interact with you. I understand how to kind of speak your language and how to fit myself into the picture that you want to paint. Um, but for me, the, the ideal scenario would be someone who's just open and open to the input of the singers and the players and a friendly person and friendly energy in the pit. Because when you're up there, anything can happen, but that doesn't always mean that it's a bad thing. Sometimes we make decisions that we have never made before, and that that's fine. Spicy decisions happen. It's just whether you can roll with it and go with it. And if it's something that you like, then that's great. If it's something that you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that, to be able to look into the pit and not feel the wrath of a thousand suns for going against something that you you've spoken about previously is really important to me and, and sophie what about you again from that director's perspective mm. you know what, what 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 do you kind of need from a from a conductor or what what you know what kind of works works for you in that relationship well i agree um with everything that you've just said but um i think as an addition to that for a director i want somebody who is and as interested in the drama as they are in the dots on the page. Um, and I think that's what makes opera, opera. Um, and that the interplay of the music and the libretto and the drama and the relationship between the conductor's way into the music and the director's way into the kind of dramatic narrative, the way that they marry is really, really important. Um, and that means that I want a director who's watching in a rehearsal room, who's watching what I'm doing and who can engage with me on, you know, on, on some of those points. And if I've got a question, then I can go over and say what's happening in the score here, because there's a disconnect between what we're hearing and what we're seeing. And can we work this out together? 
Um, and I think that's the kind of director that I want in the space, not, not the director who sends in somebody else, you know, an assistant or doesn't turn up and comes in at the last minute um, when the orchestra's there. You know, and actually I haven't worked with those people. I've been very lucky, uh, only once or twice maybe, but um, as an assistant, not as a, as a director. Um, and I think it's really important that as, a, as an opera conductor, that you understand the language of kind of all sides of it in the same way that I'm going to understand what's happening musically. And I'm not coming in and ignoring the dots on the page, but we both have our like ways in and that they complement each other. Because I think what you said, Leah, about the kind of um, the, the rigidity, that's also a problem mm -hmm. because that prevents any kind of ensemble work in the room. If any one person is coming into a space, whether they are the director, the conductor, um, a singer, anybody, if anybody is coming into a rehearsal space with this is how it is happening and we are not deviating from the plan, then you are not creating ensemble work. Um, and there are plenty of people who have created good work in that way for an audience, but not for anybody else in the room. Um, and I think in particular now, as we kind of understand more about individuality and, and the skills and the kind of experiences that everybody in the room brings, it's really important that nobody's coming in with a kind of iron fist and going, this is how it's being done. I, th I think, yes, stubbornness actually, absolutely is something you don't want to see. I think, I think, as you said as well, Sophie, disinterest as well it's not uncommon for a conductor to put the baton down and have a cup of tea and a, and, and, and a biscuit and not you know not really be paying any attention to what's going on on a on a stage i think even for the least sort of vainglorious of directors it's nice when the conductor wants to have some some sort of interest in yeah in what's going on so we'll see i say there'll be a very busy rumor mill for the next couple of years i i i dare say um you know and again it should be said that you know being a a music director at a house is not for for everyone it's not necessarily the the greatest conductor that takes on those roles you know i remember when we spoke to to sean edwards for our first ever podcast she was music director at english national opera for a short while and she said that's that type of job just wasn't for her you know it's not just about the conducting it's the uh it's the fundraising it's the planning it's, it's all those sorts of things so um and uh, there's, there's no there's no bigger job than music though to the, the royal opera house so we'll uh we'll see who uh yeah. who makes the bait uh, over the next <laughs> absolutely um, and with oliver mears you know recently artistic director as well you know a, a changing of the guard and changing of the guard in the opera world again is something we'll we'll come on to a little bit later in the in the pod today Last week, I sat down virtually with Eifert Arts Artistic Director Oliver Gooch and Interim Executive Director Michael Volper, formerly of Opera Holland Park. We started with Oliver filling us in on some of the changes that have happened at Eifert over the past few years. Well, Eifert spent 25 years uh, performing in, in an extraordinary uh, cloister at the end of a long Harold Pito uh, garden um, that sat 90 and um, when our founding creative director retired in 2018 um, and I took over as artistic uh, director, we very much felt that we wanted to broaden out, uh, aim to perform to a much bigger uh, crowd. Um, and we were very lucky to have found um, uh, Belcombe Court, which is this most am amazing grade one listed Georgian house set in 60 acres of 
you know, formal gardens and park parklands. Quite a building des designed by uh, John Wood, the eld eld elder, who was responsible for a lot of those amazing buildings in uh, Bath. And we, uh, in 2019, we put up a, a, a geodesic dome and we performed in the round in that. And then, of course, uh, COVID, COVID came. And so my first year of pro programming for Eiford came to an abrupt end. But we were really lucky to uh, uh, have got some fund, fund, funding, and we have, have advertised for an in interim exec director. And uh, by far, the cream of the crop was uh, Mike. And Mike came in with many fan fantastic ideas to how to, how to take the uh, com company forward uh, from what was a little arts festival to a small audience nestled in the, uh, in the uh, 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 country, countryside outside Bath uh, and take, take us to the next uh, stage. So for you, the past 12 months really has been about trying to regroup, find that new way forward that, that this kind of new post-COVID world will, will require. Yes, yeah, so we had two things to do really. The, the, first, the first aim was to present a season for our, our, our audience. Um, uh, but also uh, pre pre presents something which uh, may give a taste towards uh, what we've got in store for the uh, future. We are really keen to expand our Young Artists Pro program. And as part of our summer festival this year, we're, we're doing a, um, a, a stage production of Pagliacci with Chris Luscombe directing in partnership with op Opera on Ensemble and managed to find um, uh, wonderful singers to join us, Ellen Pritchard, Pete, Peter Ort, Orty, uh, to name but a uh, uh, few. Um, and with them, we just decided uh, to uh, put a little version of Cavalleria Rusticana with it. And we were absolutely thrilled to secure Sue Bullock to take on San San Tutsa. So, we are going to be in a, a, um, a saddle span tent, and there is no doubt that of what roof there is in this tent, it will be lifted off uh, with Sue and a uh, chorus and and orchestra too. So this is repertoire we haven't done before, partly because we were in a small uh, cloister. These are um, singers that have haven't uh, joined joined us before. These are singers that are very keen to come and work with us. Um, al alongside the opera, we've got our usual um, prom. We've got a uh, group called Classico La Latino uh, uh, come coming, and also a family uh, entertainment, uh, Peter and the uh, Wolf, uh, with the Office in Sinfonia too. We're actually delighted to say that we're actually ending our our season with Christian Kernan and the early opera company performing Asis and Galatea too. So we are, are actually doing more than we did the previous year rather than less. Uh, so in many ways we are growing. So I mean Michael, all of, all of us mentioned you joined fairly recently on an, on an interim basis. What was it that appealed to you about Iford? Why did you uh you know, kind of decide to spend your early retirement actually starting on a... Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, 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 the real truth, I suppose, is that I, I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in the opera business. I mean, I retired for a reason. 
you know, and I, I thought I've got plenty of time to think about what I'm going to do. I'm doing work for a particular uh, social charity. You know, I, I, you just get to a point where you want to have a change. Um, but the, you know, I'd announced the retirement about a year before I left. And of course, in that final year, we had the pandemic and the, all that that required from us to, to shore up company and, and get things on an even keel. But it became, I think, as we went through, quite clear to me that, you know, the pandemic had shown something not terribly good about the model of the opera industry, really. Um, you know, I think a lot of bigger opera companies, to be perfectly frank, have had quite a good financial year during the, the pandemic. And, and if that's the case, I think that probably tells you something's wrong with the model. And it was just something I was musing a lot on. I wrote something in the Sunday Times about this and referred to opera socialism and, you know, things that we needed to do. And it then occurred to me that, you know, maybe the pandemic is an opportunity for change. And then Iford sort of appeared on the horizon as a possibility. And it took me a while to think about it. And we talked about it. And they were in a position where they had quite a, you know, quite a traumatic rupture, really. They'd lost their home of 25 years and, and managed to, to to get a season on that following year at Belkin, which was great. Um, but it was small and, and flexible and fleet of foot and didn't have any great infrastructure that it needed to, to maintain. It was right for kind of change, and that's what they wanted. And so I said that, okay, let's do it for a year and see what, you know, I'll, I'll put these ideas to you, and, and if you all fall off your chairs... Uh, uh, and in horror, uh, and we'll, we'll go, okay, I'll go to something else, you know. Fortunately, or, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, they didn't fall off their chairs. And to their great credit, I think, have sort of have embraced the, the need for that change. You know, it's easy to see Iford as a, or traditionally, as a, a kind of, you know, that kind of archetype of summer, you know, hissing of summer lawns, I refer to, the Joni Mitchell thing, you know, that, that sort of genteel opera company that, you know, that really just has its place and its niche and, and, and it did very well for 25 years. And so to move away from that in any kind of meaningful way or to at least introduce new things as opposed to just carrying on in that way was took quite a bit of courage, I think. So I thought, okay, let's let's see. And Ollie and, and the team, we sat down for the first three months of this year, really, and have, have taken some of the the ideas and, and uh, concepts that I have toyed with for a few years, actually. To be honest, they didn't just occur to me. Just the pandemic kind of amplified I, what I thought was a need. And then during the pandemic, we there was a lot of conversations amongst the industry. There was a sense, or it seemed to me there's a sense, that, 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 that the industry was first and foremost quick to disregard all those artists, despite what we may have said about 
you know, um, the efforts we may have made. Mm. You know, the, the artists certainly didn't feel that they were terribly valued during the pandemic, not just by the government, I think. You know, I know the industry has done its bits and its bit for, for artists, but I, I'm not sure that, you know, I think, you know, the people you read and hear about most are the kind of, you know, the gal lighters of all the companies, you know. Um, and that sort of didn't sit terribly comfortably with me anyway. And, and it doesn't generally speaking. So I felt, you know, let's see if we can do something about this. Now, I mean, it's difficult for me to give you exactly all of our plans because we haven't announced them yet. And we're still, you know, we're in phase two and we're, we're fleshing it all out. But I mean, I guess the best we can say is that is that the core principles of the new IFOD, and it will have a new name, but the new IFOD will, will really set a set of ethos and principles that I suppose if you sum them up, return agency, I think, to artists. That's the core principle. It's not Ollie and I who, you know, will be singing our own praises. Uh, you know, it's really about the artist. It's not about the company's individual directors or whatever. We, we think that it's time to put the, the singers and the conductors and the designers and the wig makers right at the, the forefront and to bring egalitarian you know, an egalitarian principle right across the company in terms of how people are paid, in terms of, of terms and conditions, in terms of how people are allowed to input into the process of work, how people can expect to be treated, uh, you know, all of these things. Now, I know that there's a lot of language used in this regard in our business. You know, we, we, we've all talked about being this way for a long time in the industry. So I suppose we're trying to create, you know, not just this e emotional, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's kind of, you know, warm feeling all over. We're also trying to create a sustainable financial model, really, because opera, particularly in the UK, and particularly if you like in the summer scene, is all about chasing ever larger amounts of money to sustain the way that the business produces its product. And I don't think that we have to participate in that. Of course, you need to have supporters. You need to have people who are prepared to, to support what you're doing. But this ever-increasing growth in the amount of money needed to produce this art form which feeds then down the whole system and means that smaller, mid-sized companies are finding themselves trying to compete in a market that they just, you know, they can't compete in. And the donors and the opera audience are being taught to understand opera in a certain way, that the only valid version of opera is when it costs this much or when tickets are this much or when particular singers are doing their thing or when particular conductors or directors, you know, this is the barometer of what represents great opera. And of course, we all know, anybody in the opera business or any opera fan knows that you can go and see the most expensive, lavish, extraordinary visual 
opera production and be bored absolutely shitless. And I think what our principle is, is that the experience you have and how you feel when you leave the house is the ultimate barometer of how good that opera was. You don't have to be paying, you know, huge amounts of money to acquire the services of a particular star in order to have incredibly rewarding experiences in an opera house. And I think if we can sum up what we're hoping to achieve with a new sort of peripatetic company in the first few years, we're going to choose and find very specific venues in which to work. Some of them sort of site specific, some of them straightforward traditional, some of them unusual, some of them a little bit like the old Eiffel. We'll, we'll do particular productions in glorious old grounds and houses because that's where it suits. You know, the whole gamut is, is available to us and to our audience. And uh, I think I've said quite a lot there and without giving away everything about what we're about, about to announce. But I have to say, there's nothing new under the sun. And we're not proposing something that has never been seen before. We're just going back to some basic principles and we're going to see if we can make it work. There is no guarantee that we can make this work. But somebody has to try and somebody needs to try and change the ecology and of how the industry sees itself and how the people within it sees themselves. And we get down to some brass tacks. Well, you, you haven't announced anything there, but you've given us a very good sense, I think, of what, <laughs> what, what is going to, to come. I mean, there, there are all sorts of things that kind of stem from that. I mean, I suppose one of the things that first comes to mind for me is that you're, you're looking at making quite a big change as to how opera might be operated, how an opera company might work. Relatively speaking, Iford is, is a relatively small company. There's a relatively, you know, small number of performances yeah. in the summer. I mean, how do you think that a company like Iford can make wider scale change? I mean, what is what is Iford's place in, in the sector? What would you like to see it be over the next year, two years, three years? Well, it has the ability to make that change. And, and, and people like like Ollie and Debbie, who works for the company as well, would argue that actually this isn't that radical a change because IFA's never operated within the star system and whatever, you know. It, so culturally speaking, it's not that big a change for them. What, what it is, is it's just amplifying a particular attitude towards producing uh, what is, a, you know, an incredibly powerful art form. Opera, as we know, as an industry, has a problem. It has a problem culturally within the nation's consciousness, right? And we have tried for years and for years and for years and for years to change that perception. And it still isn't really cutting through. It just is. We have to face that. And I think the problem is, is that opera has become very, very good at selling itself to itself. It's brilliant at that. You know, um, lots of people sit and say, aren't we brilliant? And everyone else in the opera world says, yes, you're brilliant. Everyone outside says, you know, what on earth are you all about? You know, uh, and the only time opera cracks through into the general population is when, you know, 
someone sings it badly on Britain's Got Talent. But at least it shows us that there's a natural sort of innate capacity for the, for the art form. So Iford has an opportunity in a particular region, which is the southwest of the country primarily, although I'd like to think that this new concept will have a, a sort of a national uh, significance. But, it, you know, Bath, Bristol, Cornwall, Devon, Somerset, Wiltshire, these are, you know, quite culturally sophisticated areas, you know, and, and there's a big young audience, there's a big kind of cultural audience. And I think that our manner of presenting what we're doing will hopefully try to break through and to appeal to, to the sort of entertainment choices of a, of a lot of new audiences because we're not coming with any baggage and we're not trying to, you know, pretend we're something we're not. We're creating something from almost from scratch. So that will be, I mean, that's my instinct. I think it's Ollie's instinct is to appeal as much to operatic fans and that we'd like you know, the, the, the opera audience to come and consider what we're doing because I think they're going to see a lot of fantastic emerging talent. But um, the, the, the real prize, I think, is to build uh, a whole new audience in that part of the country for an art form that just still sits, you know, on everyone's back burner, even if it... it even further back than the burden. What I'd like it to do in two to three years is to have established a, a model of, crea of producing opera and of creating, you know, enormously powerful collegiate companies that, that return agency to the performers and that performers are at the forefront. The performers aren't just serving this company. They're, you know, the best that company should be doing is enabling them. And, and that's what I, you know, and I think I'd like a lot of other companies to say, you know, yeah, I, we think we can operate on that model. We think we can provide, you know, regular, solid income for our performers and to secure that income for them for the period that they work. You know, the, these kind of basic principles of, of creating art from within a group and, um, you know, will obviously never change the entire industry. They, they work the way they work. It works the way it works. But I think we want to withdraw from that, from that scrabble, really. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, yes, we need donors. And I'm happy to say that a couple of people have been incredibly generous, uh, by uh, having been excited by the new concept, which is a, a very reassuring thing to have happen at the start of a journey. You know, it's, you know, here's the idea. Yep, I'm up for that, you know, and that's brilliant. But we don't want that to be our, I don't want to spend my life raising money constantly. I want it to be successful on its own merit. And I don't want people to be uh, giving us money uh, and buying into prestige. You know, I want people to be giving us money to make fantastic art work and sustainable. Going back to that idea of 
more of an artist-led model. I mean, this summer you're working with the Opera Ensemble, which I suppose in many ways it sounds as though it's the type of thing you're looking for. You know, there are a company of artists that came together in the pandemic to yeah. this 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 Pagliacci. I mean, yeah. Oliver, was it a very conscious decision to to team up with them this summer, looking forward to what you want to, to achieve? Or was it very much a practical decision? They had a, a company of singers and a production ready to ready to go. Well, I think it was a, a practical choice that was born out of the uh, situation we uh, found us, us, ourselves in. I had put together a, you know, a season, a, diff a different season where we, we, we were pr pr producing our own work. And clearly it was impossible for us to get together in re rehearse, rehearse, rehearsal rooms and be performing to an audience of, um, well, non-socially distanced in this dome um, 200, 180, the figures just simply didn't uh, work. And, you know, op Opera Ensemble had um, uh, the pal Pagliacci up and uh, ready to uh, go. And um, it just seemed like the most sensible thing for us to uh, do. But also art artistically for me, you know, um, having been performing in a small you know, um, dome or in the cloister, we could never really approach this big rep. And it's rep that I love and with Mike's good near Neapolitan um, roots, it's like it rep uh, that he really uh, loves. So it was very much an opportunity for us to give our, our audience um, rep reptile that they haven't heard with, with us. Um, and the, the challenge was, was to, to turn it into an evening that really uh, worked. Uh, um, and so uh, this idea of this mezzo cab, or uh, it's um, the um, bleeding chunks, best uh, bits, um, uh, seems seem to be the easiest and most sense sensible thing uh, to uh, do. But quite frankly, it is wonderful not only to have the likes of Sue Bullock, you know, doing this, but it's also particularly interesting to me to also, also to have um, emer emer emerging artists working alongside her, if there's a possibility of um, some protege mentorship relationships be between her and the and the, uh, the other artists. This is very much continuing something that Ivor Arts has, has done because in the early days, um, uh, many of our singers were recent post postgrads. And I would suggest that as the sort of industry has sort of not in, in, imploded as such, but as there are many more singers than the amount of work there is out there, we benefited from um, more experienced singers coming to Eif Eiford. Um, but yet there was never really in any companies that I had noticed a, a proper um, formal, as I say, protege mental re relationship with the young, younger emerging singers could learn from the more established singers and vice versa too. I mean, we, we had um, uh, uh, an elixir of love a uh, year, year and, and a half ago. And, um, you know, uh, the very experienced things that we had there were saying what a joy it uh, was for them to be um, and, and energized and even learning off the uh, younger singers. So um, it's, uh, it's, it, turned, it turned out actually to work in many ways for us by doing these, these two operas. What I just said is, is true. It, there was some practical, we had to put on a season that we knew we could do with the only thing that would stop us would be a complete lockdown. But 
there was a bit more to the to the opera ensemble. I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of the singers with it. They're all fantastic singers. But the key thing about what they did uh, that really appealed to me is that they, as singers and very successful singers, uh, and Chris Luscombe is a very successful director, they all kind of decided, you know, we've got to get real, okay? And we want to work and we want to do something. And they completely reimagined their position as singers. They said, we're, we're working opera singers. This is a job of work. Let's work. And they created themselves a production and they, they, they pay themselves incredibly in a very egalitarian way. They all, you know, there's no kind of hierarchy. And it was incredibly um, sort of uh, entrepreneurial, really. And I think that the pandemic has made a lot of singers realise that, actually. And it was a really exciting idea to kind of juice up their Pagliacci and put a bigger band with it and an orchestra and a chorus and and bring it to a lovely place and and do something that is you know hugely emotional and visceral uh, as a kind of first step out of the, the pandemic darkness so it was it, it is very practical but it's also really fits in with what we're looking to do in the future anyway. This sort of flexibility, this, this kind of almost cussed determination to get things done without all the embellishments and baubles, you know? It's just, this is a really immediate art form. Let's, let's do it that way when we, when we can and when we need to, because how it impacts our audience is doesn't need to have this enormous uh, kind of facade. You know, we don't we don't always have to do that. And uh, this, I think, is a perfect the way they did it and success they had with it was was a perfect illustration of how we as as producers and professionals in the business, you know, need to get rid of all the crap really and um i'm really looking forward to seeing them do it in in a in a bigger space than they have been doing it and just seeing the effect and the impact it has on audiences now an article from zach finkelstein and his middle class artist blog has resounded among the opera world over the past month it exposes a culture of fat shaming and bullying particularly with one of the Met's senior artistic team, Diane Zola. Now, I don't want to dwell on the specifics of this article too much, but I but I was interested to to ask uh, both of you actually. You know, whether this is is something that you've perhaps heard of from from colleagues. You know, is it something that you know is is kind of common over here in the the UK, particularly from those artists that are you know training and kind of going through conservatoires and 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 whatnot. Perhaps you know, starting with you, Leo, is this something that you've kind of heard heard kind of being a, being an issue? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm very aware that for me, the kind of the trouble that I've experienced in terms of kind of isms hasn't been sizeism from my end. There's been other problems, but um, I've definitely had friends and colleagues that have gone through it. And interestingly, the, the ones that I remember most were all sopranos, because I feel like there's such 
such a expectation of them what they should be and not necessarily taking them for who they are what their voice is not necessarily thinking about them individually as artists and what they can bring to the table a lot of the time especially when you're training it's how can you make it how can you be the most palatable to the most people which then when it's kind of put into these parameters that are defined by an older male gaze can then mean that the only people that they really want to see are the ingenue, the kind of the fresh young kind of exactly their um, their idea of beauty, their idea of what that voice should look like. And then if, if you don't look like that, if you don't fit into that box, that becomes very difficult for you. So I know of a lot of colleagues that have had a, a lot of self-discovery over even the past year because then we've not been as exposed to the kind of constant you need to be xyz or you need to be better to me personally um them kind of finding out and me as well but like finding out what you really believe in what you really want to bring to the table and how to um verbalize that in a way that then makes sense so that then you can state your boundaries and state your kind of intentions in a way that then you can have discussions with people about them i mean, I, th I think more more broadly sophie i think we are as you said there you know seeing artists feeling more free to to, to speak out i mean i think actually zach on his, his blog has done a number of very interesting articles where artists are wanting to speak out about things um and we, you know we've yeah. had things like freelancers make theater work and we heard from Michael and Oliver just there about wanting to create a company which is much more putting freelance artists front and, and, and centre. You know, I mean, do you think this is something that we are seeing? Is is the sector kind of coming real to the actual kind of concerns of, of artists and, and freelancers and making sure that they are foregrounded? Is that something you think is happening? I hope so. Um, I really hope so. I think this year we've seen in a lot of ways, the in an unexpected way, I suppose, the real disparity in job security between freelancers and um, anybody who's employed and how that has played out in real time, not in some abstract idea that we've kind of known about and never been able to put our finger on, you know, and demonstrate in the past. But this year has shown that. And actually, to all of their credit, every conversation, whether one-on-one -on -one or in conference or conversation public conversation scenarios that I have had or I have witnessed over the last year with with people running opera companies they have all articulated an awareness of that and I think that's really important um, and nearly everybody is talking very openly about the kind of the challenges for their freelancers and and how big a community it is and that's no small thanks down to freelancers make theatre work um, you know I think I think it's really important I think along with that what we also know, you know, COVID and this year aside, is that as a freelancer, you are beholden to a really great extent um, to somebody with a position of power and authority to give you a job or not. When it comes to getting work, I think freelancers, anybody, but freelancers in particular, are very nervous about saying something that might make them might mark them as difficult or outspoken 
or you know to an extreme blacklisted from an opera company because you've said something controversial or said something difficult whether directly to a member of staff or you know in another situation on social media you know there are so many conversations about this that are really important that that social media gives us the opportunity to, to have and the transparency is really important and I know that as an industry we are moving in this direction to have more transparency and to have more open conversations but I think the fear doesn't go away overnight um, and that's everything that's you know that's about you know asking companies to be more you know to be better at their diversity to be kinder in a rehearsal room to be calling out fat shaming and bullying to be calling out sexual harassment all of that stuff however much we want to talk about it you, we can talk about it in a very abstract way, exactly like I'm doing now. But as soon as you start to name a company or an individual, alarm bells go off as a freelancer going, if they hear this, does that mean they won't employ me again? Yeah, and I think you are quite right there for a long time. And, you know, we, we've done it on OperaCast. We talk quite obliquely about these things. And actually, you know, there is a point where, like on, you know, Zach's blog, you have to start actually talking particulars and that can be very difficult for the people involved and for the the people that they're talking about but you know we sometimes you need to get a bit more specific on these sorts of things and stop talking around them but then the flip side and what's really interesting is on the flip side of this is when you if you start naming names then the speed at which social media becomes a court of public opinion is also incredibly dangerous so the extremes of this conversation are equally problematic um, you know, we can all talk about, I mean, the kind of sexual harassment thing is a really good example of this. We could all talk very obliquely about we all know a handful of people or have known a handful of people that everybody's sort of waiting to see what happens, whether anything will ever come out, what really happened. And as soon as you start naming names, you get into very, very difficult territory of if it's in the public eye, then what happens? You know, and we don't have due process set up to investigate this stuff, whether it is fat shaming, whether it is sexual harassment, whether it is other forms of bullying or kind of control or or power plays, whatever that looks like. When you start naming names and you put them in the public eye, then the bandwagon and sort of mob mentality of social media can be incredibly damaging with that when there's nothing concrete to hold on to i don't know how we navigate that but we need to kind of find a way through i think Leah, what, what does a sector that is is better for artists and, and and freelancers look like you know when you um say goodbye to the to the royal conservatoire and you know uh, 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 are out there outside the conservatoire what what would a sector that is is better for a, a freelance artist like yourself look like i think that a better freelance sector would be one that is a little bit less afraid of kind of not afraid of repercussions but a sector in which these discussions are welcomed and always partaking in i think this is the sort of thing that we are starting to talk about all this and it needs to be spoken about it needs to be thought about and people need to understand what the kind of knock-on effects of their actions and things they say what how much that affects people um because especially as artists that we we thrive we live on emotion and there's a lot of like extra baggage that can happen if you're aware of conversations that have not yet been had or di just difficult situations where 
where you can't actually say anything. So yeah, I think it would just be really wonderful if we could continue to have these conversations and if we could be a little bit braver and a little bit more patient with then the folk that will be the people that help to change that because you can't go from sharing no information and keeping everything to yourself to sharing everything and being 100% transparent overnight. That's not how that works. People will be skittish and really worried about, again, as you were saying, Sophie, repercussions from higher up or far away. And social media is definitely a big factor in that. Because if, if you think, okay, I have something to say, I'm comfortable with this, you go out there and you state your case, then if one person says, oh no, I, I actually don't think that's right. I think that you are all these things. People are so eager to jump into this fray. And a lot of the time it may even just be a sort of spur of the moment thing. So in our uh, industry that really pro like protects artists from that sort of thing mm -hmm. in these discussions would be very welcome. On, on that subject of a, of a changing of the guard of kind of uh change change coming through we we did have the news recently of the death of the former longtime music director of the metropolitan opera james levine um a towering figure in the opera world for for many decades but the final years of his life were marred by controversy after an independent investigation found him guilty of sexual abuse and um, i do think it is important to uh read out just a little bit of the statement that met made at the time of the investigation it said uncovered credible evidence that mr levine had engaged in sexually abusive and harassing conduct before and during the period when he worked at the met it uncovered credible evidence that mr levine engaged in sexually abusive and harassing conduct towards vulnerable artists in the early stages of their careers over whom mr levine had authority um i read that out just so we know mm -hmm. uh, where where things stood with 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 james levine there was a mixed reaction to the news of his death um which you know i think there was some rather tone deaf responses not at least from the metropolitan opera itself but also some artists alice coot and, and john adams just being being two that i did see online um so again i i, I don't want to dwell over the levine kind of uh, uh saga and repercussions but you know i think this is another example of a changing of the guard in in, yeah. in the, the opera world you know that i think there's a generation mm -hmm. of managers and artists coming through um who are becoming the present um and the past are are becoming the 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 past yeah one thing on that just linking back to what i was saying about this challenge of naming names is that that didn't happen that investigation didn't happen until it's his name and the, his behaviors were articulated in a public forum mm -hmm. so this is the challenge that we have. And the same with Harvey Weinstein. So this is the challenge that we have now around years and years and years of bad behavior across the whole spectrum. And I don't mean to belittle that by saying it's bad behavior, but I mean, there are plenty of examples where they don't get investigated until the names are named. And yet we have this flip side of there have also been names named where it's more complicated. And so I think, you know, I think there is real value in, you know, these women and, and boys and these men coming forward and saying, actually, this is my experience and no one's been listening to me, whatever that looks like, whether it's the sexual harassment or, or, or other stuff. Um, and I think, and I think from what you were both saying earlier about social media being a dangerous place, I mean, I think, uh, you know, as you said, where it, where it is easier to kind of speak out with authorities when you have more of a, a, a journalistic 
presence helping to uncover and tell these stories. But again, that only happens because opera is quite a a relatively peripheral art form, um, you know, relatively speaking, when it is a, a Placido Domingo or a James Levine, that is when the New York Times will pay attention. Yeah. All of these, you know, mm. um, uh, le- less less well-known companies or artists or whatnot, you know, a, a, a New York Times or a whatnot is, is not going to give that, you know, the, the journalistic attention that it, you know. And the rigour, you know, the, the, the New York Times article, article in, in the Weinstein, was a very long time in the making. Um, you know, that one article that came out in 2017 um, that kick-started this whole new wave of, of conversations around it was a very, very long time in, in proper investigative journalism. Um, so it's not easy to do otherwise. Um, but then, you know, then it opens up a whole can of worms around like, should it be up to these investigative journalists to do this or should actually I mean, I know where my answer is, but like, should actually an organisation just hear what they're being told and do something about it, like immediately, mm. just 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 listen to what you're being told by the people who are telling you that they're having problems. Uh, uh, absolutely, as, as you said there, you know, something that that journalistic rigor does give you is it's not sort of marking your own homework, which is obviously what we rely on companies to do at the you know yeah. at, at the moment, sort of police police themselves. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as I say, I think, you know, there are, there are lots of great conversations going on at the moment. And, you know, again, as we heard from Oliver and, and, and Michael earlier, there are lots of companies very actively thinking about how we make a, a new presence, not just a future, but kind of a new present now. And I say, you know, a lot of these stories and whatnot, we should definitely observe them. But hopefully it is seeing a um, a past being put into the into the past. Absolutely. Um, I do feel very positive about that. I think that's important to say, like how much we talk about these issues. I think what I feel very positive about the direction that we're going in and there will be stumbling blocks on the way. And, you know, it's not fine, but it's expected. Yeah, and prog- progress is progress. And I think right now we're seeing the beginning of it, which is almost the scariest part, just because that everyone is trying to figure out how to navigate this kind of new kind of season of actually listening to people and discovering how deep the kind of, like how deep the wounds are, but also how deep the currents are of the establishment, how important that is to the appearance and the reputation of larger or smaller companies. We all want to keep up appearances um, and freelancers included, myself included. You don't want to say anything that would get you, as you said, like blacklisted or anything like that. But if we're beginning to see that actually if things happen that are wrong, we owe it to ourselves to speak about them. And companies and higher organizations owe it to us to listen and to make change. And I think what we're no longer putting up with is just to say, oh no, but I'm sure I'm sure it was just me. I'm sure that this won't happen again. I, I'm I'm sure that it was I I was overthinking it or something like that because it was we, a misunderstanding. Yeah, it, it was I, I just I didn't I didn't get that. I it was probably just a joke, like <laughs> understanding that what you think happened probably did happen um mm-hmm. and i think it's interesting seeing how companies are ne- negotiating that discovery now well it, it's great to hear that you're both uh sounding so positive about the you know the let's call it the present let's not call it the future let's call it what's <laughs> what, what's going on, on on here and now um elsewhere that's that's going on uh here and now we had uh, over easter the announcement of the annual hask fm hall of fame the nations apparently 
favorite 300 classical music tracks. Marriage of Figaro was the top opera entry at number 31. I have a quick on the spot, quick fire question for both of you. Sophie, what is the what is the best tune in all of opera? What is the best tune in all of opera? Best tune. Oh my god. What a question. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Fire round. Um, sorry. Oh. Quick fire round. Quick fire round. Um Osuave Fanchula from Bohem. Passing the question on. My favourite, but also I think probably the best in terms of just, just wonderfulness. Um Marietta's Laut Lied from Corn Gold's um Die Tote Stadt is probably it's so romantic. It is so beautiful and heartrending and multi-layered and um, i personally think that's the best excellent um, i feel very boring with mine <laughs> <laughs> no if, if, if it's and a good it yeah. you took the other one and i thought oh no <laughs> i need to think of my other one no <laughs> um, sophie is, is there anything else that that we we, we can learn for this or is just is this just a bit of fun well no i'm interested in the classic fm um Hall of Fame, because what I would be really interested to know is how the, like the order, the table, the one to however many is, was it like 300, 500, many yeah. hundreds, um, align with the number of plays they get on Classic FM. Because I love Classic FM, but because I can turn it on and I recognize everything and it's easy and comfortable. And, you know, Lark Ascending is always number one, always. I mean, I don't know when it hasn't been, Probably in a, you know once or twice it hasn't been, but it's always up there. Um, and yes, it's a great piece of music. But I would be very interested to see how, yeah, how the number of plays that they get on sort of prime time slots on Classic FM align with that Hall of Fame. And if you did a year of like completely unknown music, whether that would or a couple of years maybe, so people would recognise it, would it start to change? Um, so yeah, that's my kind of question: is how much how much control do broadcasters like Classic FM or Radio Three or whatever have on the nation's tastes? Hmm. Then again, I don't know if my favourite opera would be my my most listened to one. Is it a bit like Christmas? You know, you you love it because it's you know, yeah, special. But then the, it's specifically. Am I right in saying that it's class? It's specifically Classic FM listeners who vote for the Hall of Fame, isn't it? So. Uh, I listen to classic FM occasionally, but I'm not a listener. I'm more, you know, ready for. <laughs> um, but you know, it's not it's not my radio station that's on all the time. And I I suspect the people who are voting for the Hall of Fame are the people who are regular, like classic FM fans. Because of course, they're the people who are going to actually make an effort to contribute their taste to that survey. Um, so who and it, you know it's not just about like saturation isn't it but if you're if that's where a lot of your classical music knowledge is coming from not all of necessarily but a lot of it does that then yeah is is classic fm reflecting the nation's tastes or the nation's tastes reflecting classic fm's music programming yes is, is the classic fm listeners hall of fame yeah yeah so is it or is it a bit of both so yeah. that's my that was my question about like that hall of fame every every year and so where does you know why is figaro number one also on their website it says so next to marriage of figaro it says includes solaria from the shawshank redemption yeah i saw that too <laughs> <laughs> I laughed out loud because, of course, that's where a lot of us know it from. Like a lot of people know it from because it's such an iconic thing. But it's not from that. Mozart didn't write it for the. <laughs> Shawshank. 
you know and yeah. I just like I find that really interesting about how it's related to and of course that's a good like it's a way of connecting classical music to other popular culture and it's really important but the word from was very interesting it is an interesting word it's always my my, my argument that actually you know maybe Pavarotti and the three tenors did a really bad thing for opera by making it popular because it just got people attuned to opera being like a nice three minute tenor solo you know there's a, there was a story a couple of years ago about a couple that paid thousands of pounds to go on holiday to Italy to I see And Andrea Bocelli and it turned out he was in was it Andre Chenier he was in so, yeah and, they, and they, they 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 launched a complaint they wanted their money back because they wanted to see him sing they didn't want to sit and watch an opera and it's this sort of idea that opera is you know like a nice concert in the park with three tenors mm -hmm. you know and it's that that sort of you know the opera is you mm. know from Shawshank Redemption it's not actually like a three-hour whole story with other stuff so whether actually you know did... I think we as an industry have a lot we have we we should take a lot of responsibility for that you know that's still something that we need to unpick because you know popularizing certain arias whether it's the three tenors or whether it's britain's got talent or whatever or whether it's the you know british airways advert great you know people are hearing this music and that feels important but we need to do better and people and because people like the music non-opera goers like this music and they go oh I know that then that should be perfect opportunity for us as an industry to like open up our arms and our doors and say come on in actually do you want a bit more of that and there's we're not for some reason in a in in, a, in out as good a way as we could be um and I know this is an ongoing conversation that's been going on for years but like you know classic FM listeners are a perfect example um, of like people who clearly love classical music and I don't know how many of them go to the opera or go to live concerts I've, I've no idea um, but if all of them were I imagine the finances of the opera and classical music industries wouldn't be as terrifying as they are. Yes I think I think you're quite right yes and as you said it's an age-old question which no one can seem to quite work out how do you turn your your Ness and Dorma listeners into people actually kind of come and sit in in in, in the opera um yes very interesting but yeah I, i'm always fascinated by these things when we see what i was going to say regular people that's the most patronizing thing I ever said but you know non-opera <laughs> audiences what, what they think of opera you know there was there were a couple of rounds on pointless recently where you know people had to pick out you know which, which is a real opera which isn't it's just it's just fascinating to see what people yeah. know because we're so involved in this world um yeah. you know to kind of take it out there is 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 always a fascinating experiment um to wrap up on our news roundup for for, zi for this month, I, I teased earlier that we've had news of the most Glyndebourne thing of of all time. Um, Baker Brown Studio um, are creating a new croquet pavilion for Glyndebourne, which uses the venue's discarded champagne corks and seafood shells as building materials, um, which I just thought was a lovely combination of, of croquet, seafood, champagne. Um, and an outdoor pavilion. I just thought it, I thought it was a wonderful idea. And sustainability, and to be fair, very, very. which is yeah. the point. <laughs> <laughs> embrace these more sort of upper class, uh, you know, trappings. Um, I mean, Leo, I wondered, you know, are there any moments that come to mind for you where you found yourself sort of in these sort of gilded environs where you you just thought, well, actually, let's just in, let's just enjoy this rather absurd um, moment of you know fancy that that I'm in. I was very fortunate to get an award from the musicians company a couple of years ago and that involved going down to London and going into I think Draper's Hall 
um, going through this whole process of awarding and there was a very, very opulent dinner that was held in this gilded high ceilinged hall with statues of muses in every corner. Um, I felt a little bit out of my depth just because I realized, oh my God, I'm A, the youngest person here, but also this is actually kind of scary thinking about all of all of the interesting conversations that people would be having and thinking, am I, am I interesting to them? Like, can I, can I hold my own in this conversation or is it more of a choice for me of facilitating conversation with those people or asking them questions that they really, really want to answer? Um, which is again absolutely fine and just knowing how to how to navigate that environment um but after a little while i i did just kind of sink into it just thinking okay i don't know when this is going to happen again i don't know when i'll be in this place again or surrounded by these people um and i ended up having really really lovely conversations with a couple of people about what it meant to them to be artists and true to themselves um and how to deal with other people who maybe thought that they were either not enough, which was surprising to me, or that they were too much. And especially when they when they were the age that I was when when this dinner happened, that that actually really changed my life to actually think, okay, so all of these people in these grand places, they've been through the same things. And it might not be like the exact like verbatim same experiences same like environments growing up but the kind of overarching themes of yeah of being enough and of being yourself and how how to go into this world and how to how to deal with all of the personalities there are everyone will have that same sort of issue you just got to enjoy these moments and i'm sure you were by far <laughs> the most interesting person in the room i mean i'm sure that was <laughs> To be, to be, to be my, to me. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my favorite my favorite little story is a very short one we went to go and see the ring cycle and talking to a very nice couple and uh, they said they'd, they'd pop to get some lunch beforehand from bagel nash which was um the only time i've ever heard it being called bagel nash and i thought that's yes that's a meeting of two worlds isn't it that yeah. never <laughs> um but yeah uh, i mean great 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 for glyndebourne sustainable and using materials they have around them it's it's very resourceful Final bit of our news roundup this month, the, the sad death of Lois Kirschenbaum. I, mean, I must say a, a name and a person I never heard of before until I read the New York Times obituary. Um, registered blind from birth, she went to the Metropolitan Opera around 300 performances a year for 55 years, um, and she was an avid autograph hunter and collector, not just a familiar face at stage door, but in the dressing rooms themselves. By all accounts, she was a, a forthright lady, who uh, knew that she wanted access to these singers and, and she was she was going to get it. Um, in her flat, they found around 200,000 autographs and pieces of memorabilia that she collected from those 55 years at the Metropolitan Opera. And she sounds like my kind of lady. Um, in that New York Times article, they say, to avoid the Met's food prices, she would sneak in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and a thermos of coffee. Um, right up, right up my street. Very quickly, Sophie, are you a, a memorabilia sort of autograph fan? Do you like kind of having these keepsakes? I'm, I'm not. I do. What I do hoard is old bits of like props and costumes and stuff from productions I've done. Um, because there's a big part of me that's like, well, we paid for that, so I'm going to keep it, so the next time we don't have to pay for it. Um, but I've very i think there's only a handful of things i've used more than once so it's just cluttering up my 
seller, uh, which is unhelpful. But otherwise, no, I'm not. A, I'm not a massive sort of memorabilia collector. I don't think. No, no. Well, my one of my uh, prized possessions is my uh, football signed by the 1999 Scunthorpe United Division Three playoff winning team. Okay, uh, cool. Which uh, it's, it's a beautiful item. Um, but opera stuff, not much. Football stuff, I've got quite a lot. I've got quite a lot of programs. Yeah. And I've got like Same. for a while for a while I collected I've still probably got loads lying around, but for a while I collected tickets for fit for shows that I'd seen before I was sort of working in the industry. Um and so there's a good, you know, probably five years worth actually of tickets in a photo album, you know, chronologically. Um and then I started then I sort of used to forget to put them in there. So there's a big wadge of tickets just like slipped in. Um, and all the others are probably in, you know, tax boxes somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to add to the collection, about, about, about 200,000 autographs are about to come onto the onto the market. So plenty of opportunities to, <laughs> to build the collection if you are interested. Um, <laughs> very brief roundup of what's on uh, that you can watch from home over the next month. Um, there's a new Philip Glass opera, which is going to be streamed from the 29th of May from the Malmo Opera Circus Days and Nights, a combination of opera and circus. Sounds rather fantastic. Um, Grange Park's new film of Le Espanol is available for free on YouTube, recorded on location in a clockmaker's shop in London. The International Opera Awards, postponed from last year, will finally uh, be broadcast on the 10th of May. You can buy tickets for that. The Metropolitan Opera's annual National Council auditions will be streamed online for the first time. And on Opera Vision, there's a usual uh, mix of all sorts of things from around uh, Europe. Uh, I've picked out Hippolyte and Arisi by Rameau from the National Theatre of Mannheim, which comes online from the 1st of May. Um, Sophie, before we get to the quiz, I believe you have a hidden gem opera for us this month. I do have a hidden gem. This feels like not as hidden as some of the hidden gems you have, but more hidden than it should be. Um, so Ethel Smythe was a um, composer. She's actually the first woman composer to be uh, awarded a damehood um, in the early 20th century. She was born in 1858, I think, and it would have been her birthday few days ago 22nd of uh, April so uh, she's been very old so I'm quite glad that she's not still alive um, but she <laughs> was amazing she was a composer a musician um, a suffragette she was friends with and uh, kind of colleagues with with uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and one of her bits of music she kind of wrote this this piece of music that became a, almost an anthem for some of the suffragette marches and, and and the movement um and i think she ended up being arrested and put in prison for some of it so she's a woman after my own heart big fan um and her one of her operas the wreckers i absolutely in particular absolutely love there's a few others um but uh, the wreckers is, is fascinating it was written in french but she couldn't get it performed in french so the first uh, performance was in german they they rewrote the libretto and was performed in Leipzig, which is where she went to the conservatoire in Leipzig. Um, and so there is also, there's a French, there's a German, there's an English version of the libretto that are not translations by random people way down the line that she was sort of involved with. Um, it's about, uh, it's set in Cornwall um, and it's about, it's set in this sort of very religious town with, uh, sh with a, and based on around sort of shipwrecks and they, get all the treasure from <laughs> from these uh, poor shipwrecked uh, sailors um there's love there's a love triangle there's uh, good there's good people there's bad people there's these big choruses it's a little bit of 
flavour from Wagner, but also kind of precursors Britain and, and Peter Grimes with that kind of sound of the sea. Um, so I know it's quite a big time frame in some ways, but um, it's kind of got bits of bits of everything um, in there. And I love it. Um, it just needs a bit of space to stage because you've got that big chorus um, and then some sort of more intimate stuff. Um, and interestingly, it was part of Thomas Beecham's first season at the Royal Opera House. Um, so it was performed and it sort of since disappeared. And she was also the first first woman composer to have an opera performed at the Met, which was not the Wreckers, it was uh, Derval, The Forest, uh, which is also great, which oh. I also want to do. So she's fascinating and she is better known than some women composers, not as uh, not as well as others. And that thing about women composers is really interesting because she she struggled with that when she was writing. So she sort of sat marginalized by her, by her, by her kind of this identity as a woman. Um, and that, you know, when she was writing her, the kind of the femininity of her music didn't stack up to men's masculine sounds, but in the bits of music where that were more, were more muscular and fuller and richer and masculine, she was criticized for not being dainty and lyrical enough. So couldn't get it right. Um, so I think she's brilliant and we should all know more about her. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just, I'm just trying to double check. You mentioned she she was the first woman to compose to have an opera at the, at the Met. And I think it was only was it a couple of years ago that they finally performed a, a second one. I think Kaya Sarahiro had a, had an opera on at the Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. It took them about yeah. 10 years to get a, to get another one there. Um, so progress. The thing. <laughs> 100 years. Um, let's uh, take it. Overture to the rest. <laughs> So, Sophie, you mentioned uh, that it was recently uh, Ethel Smy's birthday. Well, we're going to keep on the theme of birthdays and anniversaries with our quiz for this month. Um, I've got five operas that premiered in the month of April. Um, you're going to take it in turns to tell me what year the opera was premiered. Whoever is closest gets the point. First to three points wins. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> oh, help. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> okay. This quiz could have been a lot harder. Um, so we're going to start with an opera that was actually premiered on this day in history. Uh, Sophie, you can go first. The year, please, of the premiere of Turandot. I don't even know. I can't even. Oh, my God. That's so embarrassing. Turandot. My years are so, like, I have no idea about kind of going through the centuries. So let's say 18. When was he alive? God, it's so embarrassing. 1880. I think it might be slightly later, actually. I think it might be in the 1920s. Um, I'll go 1925. And the first point is to you. It premiered on the 25th of April, 1926. Oh, oh man, this is so embarrassing. Work. One, one point. Um, so this <laughs> You're right, because he was like born in the eighteen late eighteens, wasn't he? Yeah, no, but I know because it's such a he's has such romantic sound that it's then it's really like I always think of him as like yeah, yeah, super eighteen hundreds guy. Yeah, I do agree. He's he's surprisingly recent. 
So, uh, 1-0. Um, so, uh, you're up first this time, please. Premiered in, in April. Uh, what year was the debut of Peleus at Melisande? I'm thinking... Let's see. So, there was the Peleus and Melisande. 1930s? Or oh, it's either in the teens or in the 1930s. I feel like if it was in the teens, it would be something like, I don't know, 1917. But if it was later, I'd maybe go like... 1934 like 1936 do you want to go somewhere in the middle what would you like to do yeah sure let's go 1900 why not <laughs> okay so a bit of bit of a jump around there for no, no in between <laughs> um so we've got 1900 so sophie trying to compare it to turandot in my head mm. is it earlier is it later um i'm gonna say 1919. Well, your your reasoning made no sense, Leah, but you are again the points holder. It was 1902, so you're just the two years out, mm -hmm. despite the fact thinking it was sometime between 1917 and 1936. I know. I had I had a, I had a moment, and I I just remembered because for me, I always feel like Debussy is a lot later than he is, because he then he sounds so much more modern. He's more aligned with the likes of Schoenberg or to me Britain tonally like he takes much more risks so for me I need I needed to remember okay wait hold on when was he actually active well, <laughs> this is more that. than bad this, though it's because I just like I just don't know yeah like, I think the singers have the advantage <laughs> you know they they seem much more clued in when in when things were um Sophie you're up first Deflated Mouse premiered in April in what year Deflated Mouse Okay, so I'm going to go 1885. Is that anywhere? That seems nonsensical. I actually have no idea. 1885? Leah. Um, I don't know. I think it's around then too. I think it... Or was it closer to... I'll go 1884 to make oh. things spicy. Because <laughs> I, do, I do think that you might be right. Um, and it is the cheats answer that has won because it was 1874. So uh, by a year, you've taken the points. That is 3-0. So Congratulations. We'll, we'll very quickly do the final two. Um, so the next one was Handel's Radomisto. Basically pick a year that Handel was alive because uh, it's not one of his uh, more notable works. 1764. Um, 17... I'm going to say early, so I'm going to say 1758. That was 1720, um, so uh, point Sophie. And finally, Oberon, Weber's Oberon would have been the tiebreaker. I have literally no idea. I don't know any of his music or when he was born, so I couldn't even give you a century. I don't know, 1824. Uh, and uh, finally, I guess... 1850? 1826. So Sophie came, <laughs> again, but it was. Uh, <laughs> congratulations, and there were some inspired guesses. Uh, <laughs> and if no one else does, I always love the quiz. Um, I have to say, I'm really glad that at no point did I was I like a century out because that was my fear. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is easy. Especially un under pressure, and I I agree. Puccini is always later than you think, and Debussy is yeah. always earlier than you. Then yeah. think. And the other ones, you're all in the right, and they're on the same sort of ballpark. Um, so thank you for for 
playing the game as always um, and thank you very much for joining us for this month's podcast we'll be back uh, in may where we'll be covering the international opera awards and much more um so it's uh, a thank you very much to sophie for joining us today thank you so much been an absolute joy and thank you very much for, Lee for joining us as well thank you so much for having me it's always so much fun to be here thank you for listening and goodbye <laughs> <laughs>